Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. You can schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com gold. Well, Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the first podcast of the new year. And I don't think that 2021 is going to turn out anything like anybody expects. I mean, first of all, if you look at the action that we had today on the first trading day of the new year, this is a very atypical day. It's very rare to see some of the dichotomies that played out today in the U.S. stock market. First of all, the market started positive on the day and then sold off pretty hard. There wasn't any actual news driving the sell-off other than just the fact that people were selling. The Dow made a new record high, uh, 30,674.28, before closing down one and a quarter percent, down 382 points. All of the major indexes doing the same thing. The S&P setting a record and then closing down almost one and a half percent. The NASDAQ, not quite a new record. It was positive on the day, but then it was also down about 1.5%. Same thing with the Russell 2000 up in the morning, closing down about 1.5%. Though well off the day's lows, the Dow at one point was down well over 600 points, so maybe cut its losses in half. But the significance is not just what happened to the U.S. stock market, but what happened to a lot of other markets. First of all, I want to start with the currency markets, where the dollar was extremely weak across the board earlier in the morning. But once the U.S. stock market really started to sell off, some of the commodity-sensitive currencies, like the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, which were initially higher on the day and which were actually printing new highs for this particular move, 
they all reversed to close down on the day, even though a lot of the commodity stocks themselves, which I'm going to get to, they held on to a good portion of their gains. But the dollar itself stayed weak against the Japanese yen, against the euro, against the Swiss franc. So despite the dollar's rebound against some of the commodity currencies, the dollar's index itself still finished down on the day. But the most significant move was the dollar against the Chinese yuan. The dollar dropped just over 1% today against the yuan. Now that is a huge move and it's extremely rare. I mean, it has happened occasionally, but it's very rare to see this big a move in that particular pair. I mean, you're more likely to see the dollar move 1% against the euro or you know the Aussie dollar than you will against the Chinese yuan. But to see it happen on the first trading day of a year, I looked back for 30 years and I couldn't find a single day, first trading day, where you saw this big a move on the US dollar dropping against the Chinese yuan. Now, I don't think this is an insignificant move. I don't just think it's a random event. I think something big is happening. And, you know, we are upping uh, the, the rhetoric now in our economic war against China. It's not just the trade war uh, that Trump has been waging rather unsuccessfully. But now you have Trump who is waging war on Chinese companies. In particular, now there are three Chinese companies that are being delisted from the New York Stock Exchange based on a executive order by the Trump administration that so far Biden has not indicated that he is going to uh, change course from this. So the New York Stock Exchange is delisting these companies because Trump is saying that American citizens are not legally allowed to own them, which I believe is unconstitutional anyway. But the New York Stock Exchange isn't waiting for the courts. It's acting preemptively to cover its own butt. And it's going to be delisting these stocks, which is why those stocks are getting clobbered. In fact, one of the stocks, uh, China Mobile, down almost 6% on the day, That's a stock that we own for our clients in our portfolios, and we're actually selling that stock as well. I think it's a very, very good company, and I think it's extremely undervalued. And I think Americans who are basically being forced out of this stock are getting screwed. It's Americans who are the losers, not the Chinese, because Americans have to sell the stock for less than it's worth. And that lets Chinese investors or investors in other countries pick up a bargain. Now, we're getting rid of some of our other Chinese names that have gone way up because we're trying to reallocate that money out of China due to some of these increased regulatory risks. I mean, personally, I think over the long run, all of these stocks represent good buys. But over the short run, there's just a lot of uncertainty overhanging these stocks. And so I think given what's going on in the market, I think we're going to get better bangs for our buck in some of these other names that are really uh, moving up right now and that I expect to move up rather dramatically in the days and months ahead. But I don't think it's a coincidence that we are uh, clamping down on China and the dollar is getting clobbered against the yuan. 
China is obviously going to retaliate, even though I don't believe this hurts China. They don't like it. They don't like, in principle, the U.S. government saying that Americans can't invest in Chinese companies, can't own stock in Chinese companies. Uh, So I think the Chinese need to save face and they need to retaliate. And believe me, they have the heavy artillery if they want to use it. They are America's still the biggest creditor. They own more U.S. government debt, U.S. agency debt than anybody else. And thus far, they have been gradually, I think, you know, paring back their position. They can certainly increase the pace at which they're doing that. In fact, even though the U.S. stock market was down today, the bond market did not rally. Yields on the 10-year U.S. government bond, yield on the 30-year government bond actually went up. So no flight to safety today in U.S. treasuries, no flight to safety in the U.S. dollar as the dollar sold off against uh, the euro, the Swiss franc, and the yen. But the biggest beneficiary was gold, although actually silver benefited more than gold. Gold was up better than 2% on the day, about 2 to quarter percent, $45 an ounce. Gold settled at about $1,943 per ounce. Silver was up better than 80 cents an ounce. At one point, it was up well over a dollar. I think we closed around 27, 23, something like that. Very, very strong day for gold and silver. Of course, gold and silver mining stocks even stronger. The GDX was up 6.91%. I think the high I saw was up about 7.5% on the day. The junior miners a little bit stronger, up 7.02% on the day. Beneath the surface, there were individual gold stocks that were up more than 10%. Some of the biggest movers were the silver stocks, several of those up double-digit percentages today. But again, not just the precious metals, industrial metal stocks also doing very, very well. Some of them making new 52-week highs. This is the inflation trade, and it's not just playing out in industrial metals. It's playing out in commodities. You know, we've got soybeans above $13.00. Uh, a bushel, beans in the teens. You know, that was a rallying cry, I think, during the stagflation of the 1970s. Well, we've got beans in the teens right now. They are rarely in the teens. They have been there before. In fact, we closed out 2020 in the teens. We just got up there, and now we're moving up higher above 13. But this is an inflationary wave. It's the wave that I've been positioning my clients to ride for many, many years. And I think that this ride is just beginning. I think it's going to be a hell of a ride for everybody who's on board, but it's certainly not too late to get on board. You could do that. What I think is very significant, though, about today, it's not just that the U.S. stock market went down a lot, but it's that the gold and the gold stocks went up a lot on the same day and foreign stocks went up. Even though U.S. stocks got clobbered, I saw a lot of strength in a lot of the foreign stocks that I own and foreign stocks that I don't own. And to me, this shows a deliberate reallocation of investment capital from institutions. This is not mom and pop investors. This is not Robin Hood that was driving the action today. I believe this is real money and these are planned moves. Right, this is happening on the first trading day of a new year, of a new quarter. I don't think a portfolio manager just woke up this morning and on no news decided to make these huge trades. I think these are reallocations that have been planned. Right, A lot of people didn't want to make these trades 
last year. Maybe they wanted to defer the capital gains into this year, even though it is likely that the Democrats are going to raise taxes. People are convinced that the tax hikes won't kick in right away because of the weakness in the economy. So most people expect the tax hikes to kick in maybe next year. So they weren't so worried about having their gains in a higher tax year. I think they wanted to push them forward. But I think that people have been planning. Institutions have been planning these reallocations. And they started to put these trades on today. Now, if I'm right in my assessment, this is not a one-day event. There's no way all these major institutions all around the world have completed their trading in one single day. I think this is a process, and the process is going to be playing out over time. What I think is actually happening is the decoupling that I have been positioning for and talking about for, for years. I mean, since the beginning, since I wrote uh, Crash Proof and then The Real Crash. It's been my thesis that eventually foreign markets would decouple from the U.S. stock market and gold stocks would decouple from the general stock market. That trade was certainly evident today. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the decoupling is here, but I think there's a good indication that this is the beginning. Because first of all, there are very few days like today for the first trading day of the year. I look back My data that I'm looking at goes back to 1994, right? This is kind of the Greenspan era, the bubble era, because that takes into account all the cheap money policies of the 90s that inflated the dot-com bubble, and now the cheap money policies that have inflated the the everything bubble we got now, or the housing bubble, uh, you know, from after 2000. So you have all this uh, Fed money printing going on. So you go back to 1994, right, when all this stuff really started. And there's only been three years where the markets started off like this on the first trading day of the year. Now, the only year where you had a bigger drop in the stock market and a big rise in the price of gold on the same day was 2008. On the first trading day of 2008, the Dow was down 1.63% and gold was up 2.87%. So that was actually a bigger move than today, both in gold and in the stock market. But the GDX was up 7.07%, only slightly more than it was up today. So relative to gold, we actually had a better performance in gold stocks today than we had in 2008. Now, 2008 is kind of an outlying year because that was the year of the global financial crisis. The Dow Jones ended up down about 32% on the year. And gold stocks, despite that strong rally, ended up down 26% on the year. Gold was up 5%, so gold was positive on the year, but gold stocks went down with the market, although not as much as the market. So people who owned gold stocks in 2008, at least for the entire year, uh, did better than people who owned the overall stock market. And of course, 2009 was a great year because the gold stocks bounced back quite a bit more Uh, than the U.S. stock market because gold went on to make a new high. The gold bull market didn't end until 2011. But there have been two other years since 1994 where the first trading day of the year saw a big down move in stocks and a big up move in gold, although neither of the moves were as big as the ones today, at least on the upside for gold. 
In 2014, the first trading day of the year, the Dow was down 0.79%. So not as big as today's one and a quarter percent drop. And gold was up 1.62%, less than the uh, 2.2% or so that we gained today. In 2016, the Dow started with a bigger drop of 1.56%, but gold was only up 1.33%. And in both cases, gold stocks well underperformed today's move. In 2014, gold stocks were up 4.11% on the first trading day. And in 2016, gold stocks were up 2.17%. But remember, 2014 was still part of the big bear market that went from 2011 to the end of 2015. 2016 was the year we finally came out of that bear market. We had our first big rally, but then it was very choppy. We were retesting the lows. We were rebuilding a base. So I don't think those years necessarily are significant to compare, but in 2016, gold stocks ended up significantly outperforming the Dow for the entirety of the year. The Dow was up 16.4% and gold was up almost 55%. The year before that, uh, the 2014 year where gold stocks were still in the bear market, gold stocks were down. The Dow was up 10% on the year and gold stocks were down 11%. I think what's going to happen this year is a little bit more uh, similar to what happened in 2016. At least that 2016 was during the bull market. But I think right now we're several years into the bull market. And so I think that this is going to be a much bigger move and is a more significant move, the one that we're seeing today, than the one we saw back in 2016. But also, you can't separate what's happening in the markets from what's happening in the global economy, what's happening with monetary policy. You have to look at the relative valuations between uh, the U.S. stock market and the rest of the world. Look at where the dollar is technically. I think all of the ducks are lined up correctly for a huge rotation and decoupling of the U.S. stock market with the rest of the world, of the U.S. stock market with commodities, of the U.S. stock market with the bond market. It doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. stock market is going to get killed. Again, the Federal Reserve is going to make sure it prints enough money to prevent that from happening. What I am talking about is relative performance because over the last decade, People who invested in the U.S. stock market did better than people who invested in foreign stocks. The people who invested in U.S. stocks did better than people who invested in gold stocks or in commodities. That's what I think is about to change. I think what's happened today is an indication that all of that is changing and that going forward, it's the people who invest internationally that are going to outperform. It's the people who are investing in gold stocks mining companies, uh, commodities, foreign currencies, emerging markets. This is the strategy that's really going to shine. And it's not just a one-day wonder. And it's not just for a year. I think these trends are going to continue to build throughout the decade. So this is still early. I mean, I've been positioning for this because I saw this thing coming from a mile away. In a way, you can say that I saw it too soon. I was able to figure out too early what was going to happen. But it's fine. It's okay. Arriving early is better than arriving late, right? Because if you get early to the party, at least you're still there for the party. If you arrive late and you miss the party, well, you know, <laughs> tough luck. 
These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So my only concern was all the people that I got to the party so early that they ended up thinking that there wasn't going to be a party. And so they left before it got started. And so they're going to miss out on a party that I had already invited them to. They just didn't have the patience to wait for it. If you're a business owner, you don't need me to tell you that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks or spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite so you can stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information that you need, and more importantly, they don't give it to you when you need it. You can ditch the spreadsheets and the old software that you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. It's the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, your HR, your inventory, e-commerce, and much, much more. Everything you need all in one place instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or a hundred million in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies already using NetSuite right now. So let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com gold. You can schedule your free tour right now. Just go to netsuite.com gold. That's netsuite.com gold. Now, I did watch with great interest the way CNBC was covering the action today and really no mention at all about the possibility of what I'm discussing. Really very little discussion of the divergence being seen uh, between the global markets and the U.S. market. Very little coverage of gold and other commodities or gold stocks, despite some of the spectacular gains that we saw in some of these mining stocks today. Very little discussion about what happened or the potential significance. As far as the mainstream financial media is, today was business as usual. It really didn't matter that the market was down. Now, maybe people think that people are a little nervous about the special elections, uh, the Georgia runoffs that are coming tomorrow. Uh, But again, nobody talking about decoupling, nobody talking about any kind of significant shift, nobody talking about the institutional money uh, that may finally be moving the markets. All again, all they want to talk about is Bitcoin, right? That's it, right? That's CNBC, crypto news, Bitcoin, right? That is all they talk about. And in fact, for all the talk about the institutions, see, that is uh, the BS 
that a CNBC keeps spoon feeding their audience that there is this major shift of institutions into Bitcoin and that's what's driving the rally. The institutions are moving into gold. They're moving into gold stocks. They're moving into foreign stocks. They're not moving into Bitcoin, right? <laughs> that's all part of the, the con. Yes, are there some institutions? Yes, there's a couple of outliers who have made a move. And in fact, a lot of those outliers are basically now talking their book, trying to push the market up probably so that they can get out, right? The idea is that they're going to lead the charge. All these institutions are going to follow these guys into the promised land of crypto riches. I don't think it's going to happen. I think these few institutions that got in, they're going to get stuck. Bitcoin is going to end up being the Roach Motel for institutions, right? They can check their money in, but there's no way that they can check it out. In fact, one of the rumors that has been swirling around, and I think I'm reading a lot more about it, has to do with Tether. If you don't know what Tether is, Tether is the stable coin that is uh, backed supposedly one-to-one with gold. So for every Tether in circulation, there's a dollar of gold in deposit in a bank. At least that's what they say. And right now there's almost $22 billion worth of Tether in circulation. And that is a dramatic increase uh, from the number that there was at the beginning of 2020. I forget how many, four or five billion, whatever it was, 22 billion now almost in Tether. Now, the rumors are that this is a fractional reserve system, that the people that are creating the Tethers are creating more Tethers than they have dollars to back them up. Because what happens is a lot of people who are trading crypto, when they sell their Bitcoin, they accept Tether in payment. They don't actually want dollars because they hold on to the Tether in their wallet and then they use Tether to buy back into Bitcoin or maybe buy one of the altcoins or they just let it sit there, right? So the people who have Tether realize, hey, we could just create all these Tethers because not everybody wants the dollars. Uh, they're willing to circulate the Tethers. And, and so what people think is happening is that whenever there's a big drop in the market, they just create a bunch of tethers and then they go in there and buy up Bitcoin and they push up the price, but they pay the sellers of those Bitcoins with phony money, with tethers that are not really backed by dollars. And the problem obviously happens if a lot of the people who have tether get worried that they don't have any dollars there and they actually try to take redemption. They call up and they say, hey, I want real money wired to my bank account. I don't want to keep tethers in my crypto wallet. I want actual dollars in my real bank account. And if enough people try to get dollars uh, for their tethers and the dollars aren't there, then the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. What I think probably happens is they use tether to push up the price of Bitcoin. And then when the rising FOMO attracts some new money where people actually bring real dollars to buy Bitcoin, not fake dollars in Tether, people come in with real dollars, that's when the whales dump. Because the, the whales want the real money. They want dollars. They don't need tethers. They want to be able to take money off the table. And they can only do that if real money comes in to buy. And that's when people have dollars, uh, not tethers. But then when the market tanks, they just create more tethers to push the price back up again, hoping to attract in a new sucker. Meanwhile, you've got CNBC and Grayscale that are out there pumping, 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 trying to convince everybody 
uh, that, you know, if they don't buy Bitcoin, they're going to be broke. I mean, that is the new meme now that if you don't have Bitcoin, well, then you need to enjoy your poverty because Bitcoin prices are going to go so high that the, everybody who doesn't have Bitcoin is going to be broke. And I, I pointed this out on Twitter today, you know, and of course, you know, you talk about arguing with idiots. And not that the people in crypto are idiots. I mean, there's a lot of very smart people there. It's just that they believe a lot of very dumb things. And that's what happens when you get caught up in a bubble and you don't even realize how dumb the things that you believe are. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, people will eventually figure this out. But it doesn't even matter how high the price of Bitcoin goes if you're never going to sell. I mean, what difference does it make if Bitcoin is 30,000 or 300,000 or 3 million? If nobody's selling, if no one's actually buying anything real with their Bitcoin, the fact that somebody is a Bitcoin millionaire makes no difference to me, right? If they want to enjoy their millions, they got to be able to spend their Bitcoin. Well, then they got to sell them. Well, who's going to buy them? I mean, how can I possibly be poor? I have all sorts of real assets. I don't care about Bitcoin. And the fact of the matter is, I don't care how high the price of Bitcoin goes. I'm never going to need a Bitcoin and I'm never going to want a Bitcoin. I mean, nobody needs a Bitcoin because you can't do anything with it. Right now, people want it because they think the price is going to go up. But when they stop thinking that, nobody's going to want it. You know, this is the biggest problem that these Bitcoins guys don't get. And by the way, Bitcoin almost got to 35,000 on Sunday morning. And by Sunday night or early Monday morning, it was back down below 28,000. It dropped 20% in less than 24 hours, an entire bear market. Now, as I am recording this, we're back above 30,000. In fact, we're back above 31,000, but we're quite a bit below the 35,000 uh, top that we put in. What's also significant is that Grayscale Bitcoin Trust closed out at about a 15% premium to NAV, a little over 15%. And in fact, intraday, I saw it trading around 11 or 12%. Remember, I pointed out on this podcast, it was just a couple of weeks ago, the premium was greater than 40%. So the premium is shrinking dramatically, which is more proof that this you know institutional buying spree is already over because it was the institutions that didn't want to actually buy real Bitcoin. They wanted to buy it through their brokerage accounts. So they were buying the Grayscale Trust. Well, if all these institutions are pouring money into the Grayscale Trust, why is the premium going down and not going up? Maybe it's because they're not there, right? This is the biggest fake news. You want to talk about all the fake news supposedly in the media about politics. People want to talk about Fox or, or CNN or all the fake news. The most fake news is on CNBC and the fake news is that institutions are lining up to buy Bitcoin when they're not. They're rejecting Bitcoin. They don't want to have anything to do with Bitcoin. The few that are, are the outliers. But the point that I wanted to make and that I keep trying to make on, on Twitter to these guys and that, you know, it's like, you know, banging my head against the wall is that the reason gold is a store of value is because gold is a commodity, right? All these commodities are going up in price now, right? Inflation is driving wheat up, corn up, soybean up, uh, nickel is going up, copper is going up, right? Everything is going up. Well, gold's going up too. Gold is a commodity. Gold is used for stuff, right? Now, people don't get that because most investors who are buying gold don't do anything with it. They don't, but other people do. See, gold is used in jewelry, right? 50% of the gold is for jewelry. Jewelers need gold. 
You want to make a gold necklace, you got to have gold to put in that necklace, right? Computer companies, people that make computer chips, they got to put gold in those chips. They need to buy the gold. They need them for the chips. So the people who are buying gold in their computer chips, they're not buying because they think the price of gold is going to go up. They couldn't care less about the gold in their computer chip. They just need the, the computer chip to work and to work properly, it need gold in there to conduct the electricity. When most people are buying jewelry, they're not buying the jewelry because they think the price of the jewelry is going to go up. In fact, they know the price of the jewelry is going to go down. They're buying jewelry because they like it, because it's pretty, because they want to uh, commemorate an occasion, an anniversary, a birthday, whatever it is. And in order to have the jewelry, you have to have the gold. So when somebody is buying gold, they're buying it because they're storing the value for the people who will need it in the future. The jewelry companies who will need to buy gold in the future can buy your gold. They don't have to buy it from you. They can buy it from who you sell it to. That's where the demand comes from. The reason it's a store of value is because all that value is being stored. Unlike other commodities that might rot or decay if you just hold on to them for 10 or 20 or 30 years, gold stays the same. So it's an ideal commodity because you can store it indefinitely and it doesn't lose any of its properties. Meanwhile, Bitcoin has no properties at all. It's not a commodity. It can't be used, so it can't be a store of value, which means it can't be money. And I described again, and I've used this before on my podcast, I think a couple of years ago. Uh, but I put it out there again because I'm trying to get people to get this. And I talked about cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes were used by the GIs as money in Europe following World War II. And cigarettes have been used as money in prisons. Why were cigarettes used as money? Well, one thing, they were scarce, right? I mean, there, there wasn't an unlimited supply of cigarettes. And of course, every cigarette is pretty much the same, right? So you can borrow uh, 10 cigarettes from somebody and then pay them back 10 cigarettes and they're pretty much the same. And, you know, they're easy to count and divide. So you can, you, you, you know, this one pack, two packs, three packs, whatever. So, you know, they're uniform. But the reason that they could be money was that there was a value in a cigarette in that you could smoke it. There are a lot of people who smoke cigarettes. More people were smoking them in the 1940s than smoke them today. And probably the percentage of people who were smoking in prisons maybe was higher than the people that are smoking now. So there was a, a demand for cigarettes because people had to smoke them, especially if you were addicted, right? You have a habit. If you're a big cigarette smoker, you need those cigarettes. Now, even if you didn't smoke, you can still use cigarettes as money because ultimately somebody does. You know, even if you're a soldier in Europe and you don't smoke, your buddy might smoke. Somebody is smoking and it's the smokers that give the cigarettes their value, not simply because they're scarce, but because somebody wants to smoke them. Somebody is going to use it. Even if you yourself are never going to smoke them, you are storing value for other smokers who may smoke them in the future. That's what you're doing with gold. Gold is money, even if you're not using it yourself to make jewelry or to make a computer chip, somebody in the future will, and they can use your gold that you've been storing. And its price will go up you know, with inflation. As the government prints money and the price of commodities goes up, the price of your gold will go up too, and you can store your purchasing power. But with Bitcoin, you can't do anything. You can't smoke Bitcoin. Now, people, someone on Twitter said, well, you can't smoke gold. Of course you can't smoke gold, but you can make jewelry out of it. The point is you have to be able to do something with it. 
So with cigarettes, the value you're storing is the enjoyment that a smoker gets. Smokers need to smoke, and so you store that pleasure, that enjoyment in that cigarette. If you smoke it yourself, then that value is gone, but you can choose not to smoke it and store it for somebody else to use in the future, or you could use it yourself in the future. You can smoke it in the future instead of smoking it today. With gold, you're storing the properties of the metal gold and all the various things that it could be used for. And just like smokers will always need cigarettes, right? jewelers will always need gold. If they want to make jewelry, they need gold. The chip manufacturers are going to need the gold, right? The, the guys that make dental implants, they need the gold to go inside those crowns. In aerospace, whatever industry is using gold, that's your final buyer, right? Bitcoin has none of that. There is no buyer for Bitcoin because there's no use for Bitcoin. The only buyer is the speculator. And the speculator will only buy if he thinks he can sell to somebody else at a higher price. And that person is only going to buy because he has the same belief. So it is a Ponzi, it's a pyramid, and eventually it has to come crashing down. But the media is covering this like this is something new, like this is some kind of revolution. This is just a new spin on the same scam. It's been going on for centuries. Uh, It's just that there are a group of people that just don't understand it, particularly young people, right? Why is Bitcoin so popular with young people? Because they don't have any experience. They don't have any life experience. And they certainly didn't, you know, study a lot of history uh, when they went to school. So they have the least amount of experience. So they don't know the old con. For them, it's brand new. Right. And the fact that it's tied to the Internet, you know, and it it feeds their ego. And of course, once you invest in something and it goes up, right, that just fuels the mania because it validates. It makes you think that you're right and it makes you so arrogant and you're making fun. The Bitcoin guys now are making fun of everybody who doesn't own Bitcoin because they feel uh, so convinced they're right. Meanwhile, nobody is sold. And even some of the people who think they've sold They're holding on to tethers. Maybe they don't even have anything. Maybe they don't even have any money. They sold their Bitcoin for tethers and they just haven't woken up to the fact that tethers aren't backed by dollars. They think they are. So even though they may have jumped out of the frying pan, they ended up in the fire. So I think this is another surprise. Everybody on the internet is talking about 2021 is going to be the year of Bitcoin. 2020 was the year of Bitcoin. That year is over. 2021 is the year that everybody wakes up. 2021 is probably the year of gold. And in fact, even though Bitcoin was higher today than it was on the last day of 2020, it is down from Sunday. Bitcoin was falling today as gold was rising. That is the trade. People are getting out of fool's gold into real gold. And this is just the beginning. You know, the Financial Times had a big headline on Bitcoin on how, oh, the institutions are buying Bitcoin, all kinds of BS. This is the type of stuff that you see at market tops, right? Like the Newsweek cover, it's not Newsweek, it's the Financial Times, but the the concept is the same. By the time something makes the cover of these big financial papers, uh, usually it's the end of the, the cycle, not the beginning. This may be the final pump so that the whales can dump and the, the regulators are locked and loaded. I talked about this earlier. They're coming for Bitcoin, but they're acting on CNBC like it's, it's business as usual. To me, again, this is part of the rotation. So 
Everybody thinks this is the year of Bitcoin. No, I think it's more more likely to be the year of gold. And remember, everybody thought 2018 was going to be the year of Bitcoin because Bitcoin did great in 2017, right? In fact, it did better in 2017 than it did in 2020. But what happened in 2018? Bitcoin went down 70%. Big bear market, right? So the same thing can happen in 2021. In fact, it's more likely now. The fact that Bitcoin went up so much in 2020 means it's more likely to go down in 2021 than go up again. Everybody thinks it's a one-way street. It's a can't-lose trade. Well, when everybody is that arrogant that they can't lose, they probably will. Now, I want to finish up today's podcast by going from one form of crazy to another. I want to talk about the politicians in Connecticut who have probably just enacted the most foolish law probably any state legislature has ever enacted. And I criticize this Uh, law when it was originally passed. But the reason I'm talking about it now is because the first part of it kicked in today. And what it is, is Connecticut's Mandatory Family Leave Act. And basically what this law does is it says every employee in the state of Connecticut, everybody, right? So if you are a small business and you have one employee only, that employee is covered by this law. And what this law says is that every worker in the state can take up to 12 weeks, which is three months off with pay every year, not just once, but every year if it's to take care of somebody who's not feeling well or somebody who's sick or somebody who has a problem. There is a long list of criteria that... Um, you need to claim in order to qualify for the benefits, right? And they set it up like it's insurance. So there's a tax that each worker pays and it's deducted from the paycheck. And that tax is a half a percent of wages. And as a result, you're allowed to claim these benefits, right? So they're trying to act like it's insurance, like you pay a premium and then just the people who need the benefit, right? Because they have to take care of a sick relative, right? The people who need it will, you know, will, will cash in their policy and, and take some benefits, right? But the problem is just like all government officials, they forget about moral hazard. They forget about human nature. This thing is going to be a complete disaster. First of all, if you look at uh, the way it's worded, the people that you can take time off to take care of, right? It's not just your kids. It's your parents. It's your grandparents. It's your grandchildren. It's your brother. It's your sister. It's close family friends. It says people that you are not even related to by blood, but that you feel a close connection to, you can take time off to take care of them. Now, what type of injury could they have? Well, they don't actually have to have a real injury. They could just have a a mental problem. They can have a drug addiction, whatever it is, right? And I don't know how much proof you have to provide to your employer. I don't, you know, I just think you just claim it. I think employers are probably afraid of challenging uh, the employee who could probably sue you if you try to deny them their benefit. So here's the problem. These idiotic legislatures think that this new fund that they created that's going to collect this tax is going to be sufficient to provide for all the people who need the leave. Now, the taxes kick in this year. The benefits don't kick in till January of next year. 
So this time bomb is not going to explode until 2022. So there's another year where everybody can play make-believe, right? Because the government is going to collect all this tax revenue from workers who think they're paying in to this insurance plan, but they can't claim any benefits until next year, right? Now, supposedly, this whole thing is self-sufficient, right? It's not going to cost the government money because all of the uh, leave money is going to come from this giant pool of contributions. Now, of course, you don't get 100% of your salary to an unlimited amount of money, right? So if you're working at a hedge fund in Greenwich and you're making $5 million a year, right? You're not going to take 12 months off at your, you know, you take your 5 million divided by uh, 52, right? You're not going to get 12 weeks of that salary. It's capped at a low level. So clearly what the idea is that high end earners, right? The people that make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, the amount of money that they can claim for pretending to be sick or taking care of a relative is very low. So somebody who might make a million dollars a year is not going to pretend that they have a sick uh, child so that they can collect, you know, six, seven hundred dollars a week. But here is the problem. Low end workers, right? Service sector workers get almost 100 percent. It's 95 percent of your wages if you are a low wage earner. So let's say you're in Connecticut and you're making $15 an hour. That is $600 a week. So for the next year, you're going to pay $3 a week in premiums for your insurance in quotes, right? For uh, family leave, $3 a week. That's $156 a year. But that entitles you to take 12 weeks of pay where you get 95% of what you used to earn. That's $570 a week, right? Now, if you multiply that by 12, that's $6,840 in benefits. So you pay $156 premium every year, but every year you can claim $6,840 in benefits. Clearly, that can't work. And the upper income people are not gonna be contributing nearly enough money into this pile to make this whole thing possible, number one. But number two, what's going to happen in the state of Connecticut when just about every service sector worker takes a three-month vacation? In fact, most people are going to take their vacations during the summer, right? When they can enjoy it, when they can go to the beach, when they can have a lot of fun. So you're going to have all these workers trying to go on vacation at the same time, right? Because what idiot is going to work for $30 a week, because that's the difference. You get paid $600 a week if you go to your job and do all the work, or you get paid $570 to take a vacation. So you only earn 30 extra dollars for going to work. Now, of course, most people who have a job will spend more than $30 a week in gas money getting back and forth from the job. But of course, the big cost of the commute isn't even the gas, it's the time. It's sitting in traffic. You know, if somebody works eight hours a day, they really work nine hours a day. They have at least a half hour to get back and forth. They don't get paid for that. And then, of course, you know, you got to wake up early in the morning, you know, and women, it's even worse because you got to do your hair, you got to do your makeup, at least a lot of women do. I mean, it takes a long time to get ready to go to work. You don't get paid for any of that. So if you could get $570 to sleep as late as you want, not have to drive back and forth to be able to have leisure all day long, what's your leisure worth? 
everybody is going to take advantage of this. I mean, more people are going to take advantage of this than who took advantage of the PPP. Everybody's going to have somebody who needs help for 12 uh, weeks a year. And in fact, since you're paying into it, right, everybody who's paying money thinks they're entitled to the benefit. After all, they paid for it. The money was taken out of my pay. But of course, even if you think you're going to be honest, when you see all of your coworkers taking 12 weeks off, you're not going to be the one idiot who doesn't do that, especially since you're going to have to work even harder to pick up the slack for all of your coworkers who are spending the summer on the beach and you're the one fool who's actually showing up to work. Now, I think the only people in Connecticut who are not going to take advantage of this law during the summers are the school teachers. Why? Well, because they already have the summers off. So they've already got a summer vacation. So they're going to pretend to have a person who they need to take care of during the school year. So they're going to have the summers off and then they're going to have another three-month vacation in the middle of the school year. So how are you even going to run your school system when, you know, when so many of your teachers are just not showing up because they're all on vacation taking care of, you know, some supposed sick buddy of theirs? Now, of course, what's going to happen is this fund is going to run out of money very quickly, right? It's going to blow out of money probably within the first few months of 2022. The first few months of 2022, all the money they collected in 2021 is going to be gone. So now what is the state of Connecticut going to do to make up the difference? Now, one thing is they could just cancel the law, repeal the law, but who's going to do that? Especially after you just taxed everybody for a full year, you made them pay, right? Pay taxes into this program. Now you're going to take it away. I mean, what politician is going to vote to do that? Certainly no politician in Connecticut. So now what is going to have to happen is they're going to have to raise taxes in order to make up the shortfall. So it's going to require additional tax increases on the employers, on people who aren't uh, able to take advantage of this law because their incomes are too high. But now that's going to drive more and more people out of the state. In fact, this law alone, if you are running a business in Connecticut, this law alone all by itself is reason to get the hell out. I mean, how are you going to run a business if so many of your workers are going to take three months off every year? Now, you don't have to pay those workers, but you have to save their jobs. You have to keep the job open for them when they come back. How are you going to do without your people You know, for three months a year? And what are you going to do? You're going to bring in temporary workers, train them. How much are you going to pay them? Where are you going to bring them in from? Out of state? I mean, obviously what might happen is a lot of people who are pretending to uh, be taking care of a sick friend will just take their money from the government for the family leave and then work under the table for cash somewhere. But probably the smartest thing that a Connecticut businessman could do is just automate completely and try to figure out how to have no employees at all. I mean, look, I left Connecticut a long time ago. I mean, I don't have a business there anymore. I'm only there during the summers. But the problem for me is when I go back to Connecticut during the summers, if I want to go to a restaurant, who's going to be waiting at tables? Who's going to be cooking the food? They're all taking the summers off. The whole, the whole state may have to shut down in the summer. That may be the best option for a lot of businesses. Since all their workers are going to take the summer off, they might as well shut down. But that means they have to make up for all that money. They, have, they only have nine months 
uh, to, to cover all their rent and all their other expenses. So the costs of running the business are going up. Prices are going to have to go up. This is a disaster for the Connecticut economy. The politicians are putting themselves in a huge box because I don't know how they level the public after taxing them for a year to admit that the thing doesn't work. So they're just going to double down and just, you know, come up with uh, another solution, more taxes to try to cover up the problem. But they'll never admit it because nobody wants to be against, oh, you're against family leave. You're against people taking care of a sick relative. No, I'm not against that. I'm just against the government doing it. You see, what we really need is to allow the private sector to take care of it. There is real insurance out there. You can buy disability insurance. You can probably buy an insurance policy in the private sector that is legitimate insurance that you can pay for it and then you can you know, get money if you actually have a legitimate illness that requires you to leave your job. But if the free market does it, the insurance companies will accurately price the premium for the benefits and for the risk. And there will be a way to get around moral hazard. And of course, if somebody continuously takes the the benefits, well, the insurance companies are going to raise the premiums dramatically or cancel their service or cancel their, their coverage. But the way this the Connecticut law works, you can claim the benefits every single year and you don't have to pay a higher premium because you keep uh, collecting the benefits. I mean, they don't discriminate. You could, you could take three months off every year and your premium is the same as the people who never use the coverage and never take any time off, which of course, there's going to be nobody doing that. You'd have to be a complete idiot not to do that. I mean, everybody is going to max this thing out. No one's going to want to leave any government money on the table. Everyone's going to want to spend the entire uh, three months off. The only people who won't do it will be higher income earners who can't afford to take the vacation because in that case, they're not getting 95% of their pay. Maybe they're only getting 50% of their pay or 30% of their pay or 10% of the pay. So the, the more you earn, and of course, the more you earn, the more you pay in taxes, right? So it's the people who pay higher premiums who will use the benefits the least and the people who pay the least premium will use the benefits the most. I mean, that is such a massive moral hazard that only a politician would be too blind to see it. And these morons in Hartford actually passed this. And I don't even see any op-eds, any real legitimate criticism of the sheer insanity, the sheer lunacy of this law. But probably no better example of how politicians fail to consider the unintended consequences of their bills. They're probably looking at how many people there are that actually have to take care of a newborn child every year or have to take care of a sick parent or a sick child, and they assume, well, this will be enough to cover it. They don't realize the moral hazard. The minute you create an incentive for people to have a sick person to take care of, then all of a sudden they have a sick person to take care of. They make it up. It doesn't matter. People alter their behavior. They alter their circumstances to qualify for any government benefits that are out there, especially if you force them to pay a tax because now people feel that they paid into something and then they feel like a sucker if they don't take back. 
Just like with unemployment insurance, people see the unemployment insurance deducted from their pay. And when they lose their jobs, they don't want to go back to work until they've exhausted all the benefits they've paid for. That's the moral hazard. Without unemployment insurance, people will go back to work a lot quicker. With the insurance, they'll delay their re-entry to the workforce until they exhaust their benefits. Well, this is a no-brainer. This is a vacation. Who wouldn't want a three-month paid vacation? I mean, these low-end workers, what, do you want to work as a cashier in McDonald's or do you want to spend your day on the beach? You know, do you want to bag groceries in a supermarket or do you want to be at the beach? I mean, the jobs that people get paid $15 an hour to do, these are not very stimulating jobs. Most people who are working for $15 an hour don't want the work. They want the $15. The only way they can get the $15 is by doing the work. If you give them $14.85 not to work or $14.50, whatever it is, they'll take it in a heartbeat. You know, people, people work because they need the money. That's the trade-off, right? You go to a job you don't like to get the money that you need. Well, the government with this law says, hey, for three months every year, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can get the money that you need, but you don't have to take the job that you don't like. You could, you could do leisure. You can have fun, right? And how do you put a price tag on that? What's that worth, right? That's the real value. It's not just the cash you get paid to not work, but the value added for the leisure, the enjoyment, that you used to forego because you needed the money, now you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have all the fun of not working with all the money of working. This is the moral hazard uh, that, that Hartford has set in place, and it is a ticking time bomb that is going to explode in 2022.